This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson, and thank you for joining us for episode 41 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today has been in the Air Force Fire Service since 2003. He's served at several locations in the United States and overseas and is currently stationed at Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. In August 2021, he deployed as a member of a quick strike team, QST, to Hamid Karzai International Airport, also known as HKIA, in Kabul, Afghanistan. He and his 13-person team provided fire protection support for 12 days in support of the Afghanistan evacuation and the largest human airlift in history. As a result of their work and support, he received a Bronze Star Medal and joins me today to recount the events. It is my pleasure to welcome Master Sergeant Roy Campos. All right, well, let's jump right into it, Roy. I mean, tell us, we'll start out before we get into the events of HKIA and your deployment in the summer of 2021. We'll have you introduce yourself. Give us an overview of your career thus far, some assignments you've held, positions, future plans, stuff like that. All right. Well, hey, Matt, I just wanted to say first, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I think this podcast is a great thing for not only uh, developing firefighters, but by getting them into the know of uh, the different things that are happening, uh, of course, in uh, fire protection. And this is one of those great ways to kind of reach out to a, to a global audience. Everybody can, can see it and uh, really start learning more, which is an important thing in the fire service. Um, well, a little bit about myself. Um, born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. I enlisted in uh, 2003. Uh, first duty station was at Eglin Air Force Base. I loved it there. Uh, worked with a lot of great people. It's a really good first duty fire department to work for because, um, you know, how big the base is and how many, uh, the sheer amount of calls that I went on there. Um, in 2008, I did a short tour at Kunsan Air Base. Had a great time there. Uh, right after that, I went um, as a follow-on to Spangdalem, Germany, and uh, that was another great place. I loved living in Germany. Um, I, I just loved the department. Uh, once again, great people and working with the, the local nationals there. Um, it was a really humbling experience to, to develop myself as a firefighter. After that, I moved on to Laughlin Air Force Base, um, which I really enjoyed because it brought me a lot closer to home. It was only about two and a half hours from home. And once again, some great firefighters that I worked there, uh, some superior civilians that, that really, really taught me a lot and how to really develop myself as a crew chief and mold myself into uh, an assistant chief. After that, I uh, went ahead and did a special duty over at Goodfellow Air Force Base, where I was uh, an instructor. Uh, I taught the apprentice course, and I moved on to the fire officer course, and I also taught uh, the technical rescue. Once again, to be there, um, and at that time, that's when uh, DSD kicked off. And it was really the the best of the best of the Air Force fire right. protection was there. Um, that DSD program really pumped in some amazing instructors mm-hmm. that, that once again, it just, you know, it really, really helped me kind of move on to uh, my last duty station. And that's where I'm at right now, which is Vandenberg Space Force Base. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. um, that's got to be different. It is a little bit different. Um, our former chief, uh, Chief Farius. He always said that our runways are vertical, which means that uh, we do have an active <laughs> runway, but yeah, the majority that we have here, uh, we test our rockets and missiles for SpaceX, uh, yeah. ULA, uh, Firefly, a number of other different services. This base is very unique. A um, mm-hmm. bunch of wildland firefighting, and uh, it, it's it's just very busy. Let's put it that way. Mm. Awesome. 2003, so you're coming up on your uh, kind of almost ready to punch mark potentially i did as eligibility a matter, yeah, yeah. I, I sure did uh, as soon as i uh, really uh, turned from deployment in uh, uh-huh. january of uh, this year i uh, hit the button 
and oh, yeah. I'll be retiring in uh, January of uh, 23. So awesome. um, yeah. I am almost on my way out. A great 20 years. Um, I would have liked to stay in a little bit longer, but um, it's one of those things where I would really like to step out and uh, really further myself and try to try to get into some other things. But I loved my 20 years in the fire department. Awesome. Are you going to stay within uh, fire service or are you going somewhere else? Fingers crossed. I really do want to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's yeah. one of those things where – uh, a lot of the, a lot of the old timers like myself, it's it's one of those things where it really is um, difficult to make that transition back into the civilian civilian world, especially being in for as long as I have. Um, I've, that, yeah. This is all I know. Um, you so, know, all my degrees and all I've trained for is being a firefighter. So to do something different at this point would be um, something I don't want to do. So I'm going to try to stay in the fire service. Yeah, those are the thoughts I'm contending with right mm-hmm. now as well. You know, uh, I I know this. I've been certified for this and credentialed for this and. Uh, you'd hate to walk away after, you know, 20 years of doing it when you've spent so much time learning and relearning and, you know, becoming certified. So exactly. Yeah. I can identify with that. Um, well, awesome. So, you know, the main, main reason why we called you on is, you know, because of your experience at HKI in Afghanistan in uh, the summer or August specifically of 2021. Um, you know, we had received your name through an email chain. I, I can't remember how. I think it was someone at IUD who had kind of hit us up and said, hey, you may want to talk to this guy or talk to this team. And here's some pictures of some of the guys that were there. We're like, oh, that's awesome. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad we were able to line you up. Uh, and then we saw that, you know, you received a bronze star. And, of course, that's pretty – that is a huge achievement, especially in our career field where, you know, we don't have too much combat exposure you know, you don't typically see guys get bronze stars, but you got one, and we really wanted to highlight, you know, the events and talk through what happened, maybe some lessons learned. So we'll just run through it chronologically, if that works for you, to start when you first deployed last summer and, you know, walk us through what happened. Sure. Yeah, so uh, the actual deployment was uh, was a QST deployment, also known as a quick strike team deployment. Um, I'm sure a, a bunch of firefighters have, have been on that particular quick strike team. It's a very unique, uh, multi-capable team of firefighters that's able to uh, quickly deploy to austerior, outside the wire, and dangerous locations in order to provide fire protection services to a number of different aircraft. So with that, it's usually a group of uh, 12 firefighters. Um, obviously, I, we knew about the deployment six months uh, well ahead in advance due to the AEF uh, cycle process. Right. So, uh, you know, we found in December, (laughs) so it was one of those things where it was a little bit hard for us to break it to our family that, hey, we're not just going to a regular deployment, and this is going to be something a little bit more unique. And at that time, this is when um, Afghanistan and, you know, all the stuff in Iraq was really, really building up, and they were talking about withdrawing at this time. Um, So we all had it, we kind of had it in our head what we knew what we were going to do. Fast forward all the way until uh, we did the pre-deployment training uh, we did ECAC and then we did uh, uh, we did uh, CST mm-hmm. and uh, those were two classes that that I, I, I really really found um, helpful to us, especially for the deployment that that we were uh, sent to. So, our team, me, CST yeah, combat sure. skills training ECAC is the uh, survival school. Is that right? Yes, it is. So uh, ECAC is uh, so basically they teach you um, if you are captured um, how to. Uh, and their slogan is how to escape with dignity or basically to make sure that you can stay mentally, physically prepared in order to um, uh, to basically combat anything that could happen. Right. It is a 
you know, um, ECAC is, is a very humbling cl- class. It was, um, it was, uh, have you, have you ever been to ECAC before? I haven't. I haven't okay. Um, I don't want to give any secrets away or, you know, spoil uh, anything. I've heard stories. <laughs> um, it, it prepares you. It, it does. It is, sure. uh, you know, it's one of those very, uh, amazing classes and I, I wish they would, I wish everybody could go to that class. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, CST was a little bit different. It was more combat skills training where they, t- we had a little bit more time with uh, the rifle, the, uh, the pistol and, uh, how to reload, how to, you know, go through certain areas and convoy operations, um, uh, more medically, uh, combat advanced training. Hmm. So, so those were the two, uh, pre-deployment trainings that we went to. Okay. Um, so, uh, in, uh, July of, uh, 2021, we all got there and, uh, yeah, this is during COVID and everything, so things were a little bit different. We had to do a what they call a restriction of movement, also known as a ROM, and uh, mm-hmm. so that that whole thing was a you know a little bit. Uh, it was just it was very different than a normal deployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got there, of course. If you've if uh, you know we were uh, stationed out of Ayudid, which is in Qatar, and if anyone's ever been in Ayudid during summer, it's it's uh, ridiculously hot, terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One hundred and twenty degrees easily with humidity. So as soon as we arrived there, um, we were already informed that we were going to be going to uh, Afghanistan, specifically the airport in Kabul. Um, so we had to go to a, a couple of different briefings and, uh, you know, rules of engagement briefings. And, and they were kind of telling us because at this time, this was when, uh, you know, the, the viral video of, of the Afghans storming the gate and the C-17 taking off. We, well, we arrived uh, two days right after that. So tensions oh, wow. were still still very, very high. I didn't realize uh, that you had r- arrived right around that same. So your cycle's a bit different than what we normally are on. Yes, yes. Because I, I deployed last year as well, and I showed up in country, I think, what did we show up? April or May. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So the cycle's a bit a bit different than yours. But. It was a little bit different um, because they needed us to get there as soon as possible. Um and they knew that they were going to have to start evacuating, and hence the aircraft, the C-17, the, the primary aircraft that was used there uh, to evacuate during Operation Allied Refuge. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, the QST team was a mixture of, uh, there was five of us uh, from Vandenberg Space Force Base. There was six from uh, from uh, a joint base, uh, Charleston, excuse me. And, and then we also had one personnel from Cannon Air Force Base. And then at the very, very last minute, they assigned a, uh, a vehicle maintenance operator to us, which was from Keesler Air Force Base. So it was a total of 13 personnel that deployed to uh, mm. HKIA. Oh, that's crucial, having an LRS vehicle mechanic. It really was. And that kind of leads me into the next point. of um, So the Quick Strike team is assigned uh, three primary vehicles, two P-19s, the old school P-19s, um, the very traditional P-19s. And then we had a T T three thousand, or it was a, but it was a modified striker, which with the ultra high pressure. Okay. So we'll we'll call it a striker. Sure. We had those three vehicles, and uh, we had two ISU kits, and ISU kits are just these big Conex boxes. Um, what it is, it's it's basically a fire station in two boxes. You know, you deploy us with three vehicles and the two ISU ninety kits, and basically that is a fire department. Right. Um, FX kit. The FX kit, exactly. Um, so. Obviously, uh, we found out about the deployment, and uh, we knew on the night of uh, August 17th that, hey, this is the date that you are going to be going. Um, of course, with the amount of gear, the amount of personnel, and the amount of vehicles that we have, we're only able to provide a reduced level of service, also known as an RLS. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That was mostly because of the C-17 aircraft that was going to be there. And, of course, we were capable of handling other emergencies, medical, um, certain technical rescue, certain hazmat, structural, and uh, anything else that we can encounter when we got over there. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, uh, we loaded up on the night of August 17th, and we actually arrived on uh, the 18th of August, but it was at nighttime. The flight took a while. We had to make a couple of stops. Um, But... When uh, the 13 of us arrived at, at HKIA, and um, when you go to a combat deployment or a forward deployment and uh, an aircraft is there, they usually have um, the, what they call ravens. Uh, they're basically security forces that are on the aircraft, and when, when the doors open, uh, they basically go out and provide you security. know, perimeter security. Yeah. Um, so when those doors opened up, it was... Uh, it was something that I'll never forget. It was um, the doors opened up, the Ravens uh, started getting off. We started getting up, and we started getting all our equipment. And we had this thing in our head. We didn't really know where to go, who to talk to. You know, we didn't have much information. Um, there's one officer came up to us, and uh, he was uh, he goes, "I don't know where you're going, but don't follow me." <laughs> and I said, uh, "Okay, okay." Direction, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, the 13 of us stepped off the aircraft, and it was. It was a literal war zone. It was uh, it was just like you would see something in the movie. It was it was nighttime. There was gunfire. There was uh, there was local nationals. There was people crying. There was people everywhere. Um, there was tracer rounds in the air. Um, it was something that that I'll never forget. And it was wow. it was definitely um, it, it, it it made you stay on your toes. Mm-hmm. Once again, we didn't know much about the base. Um, we did co- we did get a couple of uh, briefings. And uh, beforehand, they kind of gave us a layout of what was going on there. Some of the stuff I can't really talk about that they briefed us, but they did kind of let us know the general outline of the uh, the installation. Um, initially, we didn't know where we were going, so we had to split the team in half. One uh, Six people went to go retrieve their equipment and vehicles, and the other seven uh, ventured out to try to find the fire station. We were able to find the fire station pretty quickly, mostly because it was right next to the flight line. And uh, we located the uh, fire department met up with the other six people. And uh, when we entered the fire station, I remember meeting the fire chief and he had a big smile on his face. And he goes, and he goes, thank God you're here. We've been waiting for you. And um, it was great. And everybody else came out and uh, big smiling faces. And um, that's when we linked up with the fire department. Were those local nationals or were those some, was it another country kind of holding down? Yeah, it was, it it was a mix of uh, half and half. It was uh, half of the department was local nationals and the other half were contractors. From uh, South Africa, um, they were from the UK. Um, I think there were some Irish guys there uh, from Ireland, you know, obviously. And so, uh, you know, so when we got there, uh, the fire chief informed me that um, the majority of the fire department already left. They evacuated. Um, obviously, you know, hey, I, I totally understand why, you know. Um, yeah, they're contractors. They're not soldiers. Exactly. Um, and they, you know, they, they do have body armor. Um, but that's pretty much about it. And you got to keep in mind, two days before this, the, the installation was totally overrun. So right. I would imagine that that shook them up a little bit. Sure. Um, so the majority of the fire department left. Um, the fire chief and a couple of the guys stayed behind. And those guys were instrumental in setting us up and, and really helping us out. We got there, ate an MRE, fell asleep as much as we could, uh, woke up the next morning. And um, those civilians trained us on uh, the vehicles that they had there. They had... They had uh, an amazing fire station, probably one of the nicest fire stations I've ever been to. And they had a huge arsenal of, uh, of fire apparatus. Hmm. So, so the, you had P-19s and 
whatever they had. Yeah, so on, initially we only came with one P19 and the two uh, IS United kits, the FX kits. Sure. So as soon as we arrived there, we already um we we had to let them know, "Hey, we don't we don't need uh we don't need the rest of the vehicles or equipment anymore. We got plenty here." Yeah. Uh, the only problem was was the majority of the vehicles were Rosenbauer and they were other uh, European vehicles um uh, all stick shifts, all, you know, very different. So uh, once again, me going back to those civilians and, and how instrumental they were in teaching us, they, they stayed behind for a whole day and taught us how to operate all the vehicles, how to operate all the equipment, and they gave us um, base familiarization. Hmm. So, I, you know, really, really huge shout out to those guys that stayed behind and they really risked a lot because um, they didn't know if they were going to get out. Wow. Yeah. And so they were waiting for planes to leave. Oh, yes, they were. They were waiting for their flight to leave. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because mm-hmm. okay. they're non-combatant. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Once again, you know, huge arsenal of vehicles. Uh, they had three, you know, uh, Rosenbauer ARF trucks. They had a structural apparatus. They had a huge tanker. They had a, a almost like a Chief Two or a, you know a Chief's vehicle. Hmm. They had a plenty of support vehicles. So the fire department was locked and stocked. It had everything you needed. Full dispatch center with phones with internet. They had cable television. They had show- hot showers. Hmm. Um, they awesome. had, uh, you know, a day room, they had uh, any, a gym, they had anything that uh, normal stuff that you would think. And, you know, a fire station that we all work at, um, they had there. Gosh, it had to be tough for those guys walking around. Cause I imagine they never came back. Right. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, you know, they had to leave behind a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, kind of going to that. So uh, obviously the contractors, um, within the first 24 hours of us arriving there, they all left. So the only people that were left behind were the local national, um, Afghan firefighters, which um, those guys were great. Um, they all spoke, most of them spoke great English. You know, we were able to communicate with them. Um, they were able to help us out with a lot of stuff. And um, obviously, those guys um, were also looking to leave and they sure. also had family members behind. So we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that. For the, feared for their life at that point. Exactly. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that and how we helped them get sure. out of there a little yeah. bit, a little bit later. Um, Great. Yeah. Once again, we had a full fire station. So we walked in there. We kind of just, um, you know, basically took over. We did a handover, myself and the fire chief. And uh, we kind of just start getting right into business. Um, So one of the one of the things that was big was communication. Um, Once again, we had a full dispatch centers and they had their own radio systems. But we also brought Harris radios. Um, Harris radios are a very unique (laughs) operational piece of equipment because um, they're very touchy. but those is what is what everybody used. The control tower um, is how they used to communicate with us when we got in-flight emergencies and ground emergencies. So we would primarily use the Harris radios to communicate with the tower, and we would use the radios just to communicate with each other. Um, we also had a, a satellite phone with a zipper sleeve, a.k.a. A, a secret sleeve, so we can communicate back um, to IUD and give them updates. We called them... Uh, uh, two to three times a day. Master Sergeant Watts was the other person that was with me, and he was and he was helping me out a lot with that as well. Um, so every day, every day was different. Um, you know, every day was uh, we were only we were only there for twelve days, um, thirteen days if you count the the days that we uh, uh, that we actually departed on. But every day was it was uh, it was crazy. There was if we would have responded to every emergency and every fire it there would have there wouldn't have been enough time to reservice the vehicles there was right. um you would have to imagine that um once again it was it was a full war zone i, I can't i can't uh, emphasize that enough it was it was very chaotic um 
uh, initially people were just afford, you know trying to get out of there. Um, you have to also have to keep in mind there were 32 other co- coalition forces there. So just driving down the road, I mean, you would see people from all all around the world, the J- Japanese, Chinese, uh, Korean, German, uh, every, uh, Australian, Canadian firefighters. So it was very cool to interact with the different forces that were there. And we were all there trying to do the same thing, just trying to keep the base secure and trying to get as many people as we can out of there because we did have a deadline of, of getting people out of there. Um, so once again, um, we, you know, we kind of woke up, we ate MRE and everybody got in their vehicles and they just went out and dispersed and basically tried to do everything that we can to help. Um, we, once again, people were, uh, you know, getting a little crazy out there. <laughs> so um, you did disperse. You didn't stay in the fire station, uh, kind of set yeah. resources out across the flight line. Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, so initially, uh, we did stay in the fire station maybe like the first day or two, but we kept, we kept finding out that people were coming to us and saying, hey, we need help with this. We need help with that. Can you come over here and do this and that? Gotcha. Um, so probably around the, the third day is when we were like, all right, guys, we need to, we need to get out there and start, start helping some people out. Obviously, we had to stay within a response area uh, because our primary focus was the flight line. That's what we're there for. We were there sure. for one thing and one thing only was to make sure that that flight line had a crash fire rescue services and it was safe for aircraft to depart and land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, you know, we were, um, we're in the area around just doing whatever we can to help um, people. The, the major, th- the major problem that we we're dealing with was people were burning a lot of stuff. They were burning sensitive documents. Obviously mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of different things going on around the base that required us to uh, make sure that nothing caught fire or because the buildings are so close to each other. If one building caught fire, the fire would easily so. spread through the the neighboring structures. Right. Um, there was also a huge fuel barn that was there. That was uh, probably our uh, one of our other primary hazards, other than the aircraft. It, it was it was big. It was very very large. So if a rocket or if a fire were to get close to that, that would be a catastrophic emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, basically, that's what we did. Um, the Afghans that were there, they had their own separate living area. Um, they have uh, they had a different area, so we basically were in the fire station and we took over the training office, the uh, computer office, and the AC's office. We cleared everything out. We just put our bunks in there. Well, once again, COVID was at the height of of what was going on, so we had to separate ourselves to make sure that none of us got sick. Mm-hmm. So uh, we made sure we made that separation. Well, that's nice. At least you had a nice station, hot water. Was was the infrastructure working for the entire time, like the water and electricity and all that? Uh, for about the first three days um, after that, uh, services started dropping out, um, and that's when it started getting more, more and more nerve wracking. Uh, I think we lost uh, Wi-Fi on the fifth day. We we lost phones that same day. Uh, the next day, we lost water. Uh, we lo- we started losing electricity on and off, and then. Um, after that, there was no base communication, so there was no um, there was no loudspeaker system. So even if there were incoming missile or anything like that, no one would be notified about it unless you were on a Harris radio. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we really had to stay vigilant, and we always had to go with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the biggest issue, other than the the different emergencies that were happening around the time, like I said, the 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 fires that were caused by people, was um, the sheer amount of trash. Um, and of course, with, with so many people and, you know, uh, crammed in one spice, you know, uh, the issue of human waste and trash comes up. And it's one of those things that not a lot of people think about when, when you deal with something like this. Um, 
it, it was it was a uh, it started it started creating a health hazard where there were certain areas where you couldn't walk because there was just so much human waste and trash everywhere you didn't know what you were going to step on if you were going to fall down you know so that was one hazard that that we really had to to keep in the back of our mind when we were going in and out of buildings responding to emergencies was was uh obviously the human waste everywhere um uh we had to burn a lot of trash um in, in the fire station because we're, there was just piles and piles of trash. So there were certain times where we had, we, we actually had to burn us a lot of the cardboard. Um, we were so close to the flight line that um, all the trash started blowing onto the flight line and it started creating a really, really big foreign object debris or FOD hazard there. Um, but just going on that flight line was just, there was trash everywhere. There was FOD everywhere. There's nothing you can do about it. The only thing we could really do is keep our fingers crossed and hope that one of these aircraft doesn't suck in, um, you know, uh, anything. Yeah, so absolutely. It, it was a huge hazard. Um, any specific emergencies that you can talk about? There was one picture that we saw of, it looked like an airman holding a child in a crash vehicle. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, that was actually tech Sergeant Hammond and, uh, staff Sergeant George, uh, they were on one of the crash vehicles and they actually drove out, like I said, uh, just on a, on one of the days just to kind of go out and start helping people. Um, they drove out to uh, one of the main gates that was there. Uh, when they drove out to the main gate, the Marines that were there were asking them, hey, is there any way you could, we can use your truck to spray down the crowd and cool them down? Because at this time it was pretty hot and there was thousands of people, you know, just waves of people. So they would bring the truck out there and spray them down and make sure everybody stays cool. They would use the intercom system on the radio. Um, the, one of the local nationals would get on the the PA and, Hey, everyone calm down. We're going to, we're going to help as many people as we can. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, while the Marines were up there, they were handed a baby. Of course it was in this, you know, viral picture video where the, where the baby was handed up to the Marines, Mm -hmm. uh, handed to the Marine. Uh, and initially we thought the baby had a dislocated arm just, just because of how the, the, you know, the, the changeover happened. Mm -hmm. Um, the Marine picked up the baby and just luckily, I mean, this was just pure luck that, you know, Tech Sergeant Hammond was right there. And uh, luckily they handed over the baby to Tech Sergeant Hammond. They took the baby inside of the uh, the, the crash truck. They turned on the AC and they started giving the baby you know, little drips of water. And um, they actually called me and Master Sergeant Watts. They said, hey, we've just been handed a, a newborn baby. Um, we need to take this baby to the to the hospital. They had a field hospital there. So me and Master Sergeant Watts connected with them and we escorted them back to the hospital and we were able to bring that bring that baby to the clinic and uh reunite it with his family. Yeah. I could get a lot more into that story. Unfortunately, I think Tech Sergeant Hammond tells a real great account. I mean his his story on how that, that whole thing happened was was amazing. It really was unique. Yeah, and I know that account multiplied by however many times it was happening all over that place. And was there any integration with the Marine Corps? or any other service during your time? Cause they, there was a large, large contingent of them there as well, right? There was, uh, there was a heavy, uh, Marine and, uh, us army force there. So they would, they would come to the fire station three, four times a day, just asking for, Hey, can we get a ax? Can we borrow one of your trucks? Can we, can we use a ladder? Can you bring us water MREs? Um, so we were, we worked, uh, very closely with them. Uh, there was about maybe the fourth or fifth day where we had probably three extra crash trucks and we would just station them at the primary gates 
And we would just say, hey, here you go, guys. Here's how you refill it out of the hydrant. Here's how you spray water out of it. Here's how you turn it on. Here's how you do normal operations. Just and to cool down and wash people off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they were so those trucks were a station in those areas. And for all I know, they're probably still there now. I, but, you know, we would basically go drop the trucks off to them, let them use it. And then uh, every now and then they'd say, hey, this part broke. Can you come help us fix it? And we had some great guys on our team that, that, that knew what they were doing. So they came over there and they were able to repair it and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, we, we worked very closely with them. Very, very closely. Were you guys there when the, uh, explosion went off that killed a bunch of Marines? Um, for that event? uh, we were there for that event. Uh, that was, that was one of those, that was one of those, uh, there was a couple of different scary uh, times there. We, we ran in, we ran into a couple of times that were very nerve wracking. Um, that night in particular was on August twenty sixth of two thousand twenty one, and it happened right about seventeen hundred hours where the Abbey Gate. The Abbey Gate was was our, was the primary gate of how they were letting people in and out of there. Um, obviously, um, I think uh, they attacked that area because it was a heavily uh, populated area for not just the Afghans getting in, but my Marines. There's a huge Marine presence there. Um, so a suicide bomber came and obviously detonated explosive. We, we were, we weren't near the area, but we were uh, directly on the other side of the flight line when it happened. Um, so when the attack happened, uh, we heard an incoming missile and an incoming ground attack. Um, I think they hit both the buttons cause they didn't know what it was initially. Um, and so at this time, all the forces were dispersed. Um, one team was on the other side of the flight line. Um, one team was in the main, I don't know what you would call it, like the Katoman area, the main where all the buildings and stores were. They were they were there trying to reserve, uh, restore water services to the base because we lost water that day. They were using a, a pump to pump water out of there in an effort to try to get everything going again. Um, one base was at the loading area and another another team was at the fire station. So we were totally dispersed from each other. Um, obviously, when the attack came in, we all had to take cover in the bunkers that they had there. Um, and we all, we all basically had to do accountability with each other, except for one team. There was one team that was all the way on the other side of the flight line by, by themselves, mind you, in the middle of the night. And, um, their Harris radio or their other radio wasn't working. The only, the only way they were able to communicate with us was through WhatsApp. If you can believe me, wow. <laughs> technical Sergeant Lily just happened to have T-Mobile and his T-Mobile worked, and wow. he uh, he he sent us a message to say, "Hey, I'm okay. What do you need me to do?" So, wild? yes, um, <laughs> himself and uh, Senior Mcfinnan um, were in that bunker by themselves in the middle of the night, and there was also a gun battle going on right behind them. Uh, there was a firefight right outside of the right outside of the uh, area that they were at. Um, and you have to consider um, if there's one thing that. That and I'll kind of talk a little bit about this a little bit later is is the resilience that that you really need. Um, Senior Mcfinnan um, found out about this deployment uh, three weeks before we left, so you have to consider that about a month and a half uh, after he found out he was deploying, he was in a bunker with the gunfire going off in, a, in you know an inbound So it really shows the resilience that that you know that we all should really have in the back of our head. Like, hey, this we can always be deployed to something like this, right? Yes. Yeah, um, uh, so yes, after the attack happened, um, you know, um, it, it was all pretty, it was pretty nerve wracking for everybody. Sure. Um, so, um, of course, and you know, I kind of talk, I want to talk a little bit about kind of working in a, in a combat environment. Um, so obviously going there, uh, normal 
gear that we wore was full IBA or, you know, the flak vest. We had the helmet, you know, we had all that good stuff. We had an M4, 210 rounds, M9 with 45 rounds of ammunition. And we had that with us at all times in and out of the fire station. The only time we weren't wearing that was either wearing our bunker gear or we were sleeping. Um, so the reason why we had to wear that at all times was because of the sheer amount of bullets that were coming down as a result of people firing in the air. Um, everybody was firing gunshots in the air. The Taliban were, um, of course, the people on the installation were firing in the air and they were firing in the air to, to try to, in an effort to disperse crowds. Right. So when a big crowd would come, you know, they would fire weapons in the air. Um, the rules of engagement were a little bit unique here in a sense of they actually allowed you to shoot warning shots. Um, if someone were to storm the gate and come towards you. So there was a bunch of firing happening. Um, obviously when bullets go up, they got to come down sometime and, uh, they would come through the station. They came through a station a couple of times. And one of the times we were having a briefing and, uh, I mean, it just, it ricocheted, ding, 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 ding. You can, you can hear it come through the station and we're like, what was that? And we picked it up and it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a round. (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Um, and so that happened a couple of times. So we really had to stay on our toes there, even in the fire station. Um, another night, this was uh, August uh, 22nd, I believe, um, there was a altercation between uh, a Marine and an ANA, uh, basically the local national, the Afghan uh, forces there. There was a firefight that happened. Um, this happened right outside of the fire station. And, um, you know, we were used to hearing gunfire all day, all night. But this night... Um, it was very close. It was right outside of the the door. I mean, you can, it sounded like someone was firing a gun. So we all had to take cover and go down. And, uh, there's another humbling experience. We had to, we had to protect the fire station. We, we took defensive fighting positions around the, the fire trucks in an effort to, to make sure that no one came in. Exactly. Um, one of our, uh, uh, one of the QST members, uh, tech Sergeant Blackman, staff Sergeant Blackman at the time, uh, his uh he's uh he's guard so his normal job on the outside is he's a police officer and he was a huge a huge asset to the team i mean he was able to say hey here's the best places to set up here's what i would do here's to do that i said you know what man good call let's go with it Mm -hmm. and he was the one that set up those defensive fire uh defensive fighting positions that would have uh it's a small kind of hidden value of having guardsmen yes company us on deployments is that they have jobs that are different from firefighting jobs on the outside. And it's so helpful in a moment like that. Would you even think of that before deployment, you know? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it was great. All those guys were, were, um, assets to us making out of their safe. I mean, if, you know, if one of those guys weren't there, I mean, it would have been a little bit different. Of course we um, get our CST training, but I mean, that's what a couple of weeks, you know, exactly. It's not, it's not kind of embedded into how we do business day to day. It's not something we think about. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was, um, it was unique to, to be there. Um, you know, a couple other situations happened. No one, but when it comes down to it, um, and I think luckily no one fired directly at us and we didn't have to discharge our weapons at anybody, and which, which was really good. You know, we're, we're there to protect the airfield. Um, but obviously when you're working in an environment, you're exposed to different hazards. And uh, th- those were some of the hazards. Um, you know, kind of getting back into some of the other different emergencies that we went to, um, Fire was, obviously, they were everywhere. Anytime you drive out, it's very normal to see a fire, people burning documents or people burning computers and stuff like that. We just wanted to make sure that nothing was around them and, you know, it wasn't going to interfere with anything that was going on. One of the big fires that started, this was at the end of the runway, was what we like to call the the battery pit fire. Um, We uh, 
got a 911 call. They basically called the uh, dispatch center saying, hey, there's a huge fire at the end of the runway. Uh, we drove out there and we found out there was a big hole and people were burning batteries in there. Wow. Uh, you can instantly tell because when we arrived on the scene, there was this certain smell. There was like the, almost like metallic smell um, that, that you had there. As soon as we got there. Um, that can be healthy. <laughs> yeah, it definitely wasn't. Uh, you know, we arrived there and uh, we had some uh, army guys that told us, some U.S. Army guys saying, hey, we're, we try to we try to burn some of these documents and we didn't find out that there was batteries in there. Um, so obviously this was a huge hazard, um, not only just with the uh, with the inhalation hazard, but also with the metal catching fire. Metal expands, obviously, and it can cause an explosive hazard. So we didn't want to put any, uh, you know, we didn't want to get crazy and start putting any agent or any water on it. And uh, that's when uh, we had the, you know, the contingency firefighting mindset of, hey, let's get a bulldozer that was right next to us and let's just smother it. So we were able to um, extinguish that fire using a bulldozer and some dirt and uh, to minimize the hazard that was exposed to us. And I think that was that was another great call that that we made in order to extinguish that fire. Did our guys operate that or you? Uh, somebody else. Uh, uh, so uh, one of our guys, uh, Technical Sergeant Davis, was an excellent forklift and uh, oh, operator, and he helped perfect. us out not just for this, but for a couple of different things. That thing knew how to operate a forklift like no other. And uh, so he was able to help us smother that fire without using minimal agent and minimizing uh, any kind of inhalation hazard. So that was that was amazing. It really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, another big fire that we went on was, was a brush fire on the active runway. Um, of course, like I told you before, about every 45 minutes, maybe every 30 minutes to an hour, an aircraft was landing or taking off. I mean, it was a nonstop constant. You know, it was just aircraft were constantly landing and taking off. Um, some of the aircraft had to discharge their chaffs and flares uh, for undisclosed reasons. Hmm. Um, on one of these on one of these uh, takeoffs of a C-17, they discharged their chaffs and flares immediately uh, right upon takeoff. And this caused a brush fire on the active runway. Hmm. Um, obviously, for the largest human airlift in history, they weren't going to stop uh, aircraft landing and, and taking off just because of a fire on the runway. So um, our teams were able to go out there on an active runway with aircraft flying overhead and extinguish a fire in full IBA, mind you. Um, it was uh, That was another one where, you know, something that... that I, I, you know, I've never experienced before. I would imagine nobody else has. It was, it was very unique to fight fire and full IBA with aircraft flying overhead. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, so um, hand tools is pretty much the extent of that. I'm sure. Uh, no, we actually, we actually had the crash trucks. We drove them on there. You did. Yeah. So, um, some, uh, you know, obviously the Vandenberg guys are very familiar with wildland firefighting. Oh, yeah. We're able to utilize those wildland firefighting concepts and tactics in order to quickly extinguish that fire and get off the active runway as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously we, we need to minimize the time that we're on that fly line. So we're able to, we're able to knock it out in about 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was awesome. Um, and kind of like, you know, the last emergency that, that I really wanted to highlight and especially, you know, the, the resiliency of some of the guys that we had here was, um, this was towards, uh, the very, very end of our time there. So this was probably like the 10th or 11th day that we're there. Uh, fire was started, uh, nearing, near one of the uh, gates at this point, they already stopped people from coming in on base. So a lot of people started scattering and, and going back, um, and leaving the installation, but, um, a fire was started due to a smoke grenade uh, near one of the main fences, and uh, we were called out there to extinguish it. Uh, upon arrival, we got there, quickly pulled handlines, and started to extinguish the fire. And uh, one of the uh, Army 
personnel tells us, hey, so I'm just letting you know, just be mindful that the there's nothing, there's all those people that you see out there are Taliban. And they they could distinguish who the Taliban were because of their garb and their, you know, the way they wore their beards. There was a certain appearance that they had to them. Right. And obviously they were, they were uh, armed. So um, that was another time where we're fighting that fire on that hill. And, um, you know, to actually fight fire in front of, uh, you know, the enemy or, or at that time they were, they were kind of working with us, but um, it was, it was very nerve wracking. And a lot of the guys, they were very resilient and they were there to fight the fire. And if something were to happen, they would quickly change over from a firefighter to an airman, you know, it was that quick changeover, you know, mm-hmm. they were, they were so ready to do that. And, and I, I give it up to all those guys, you know, they were, they were quickly ready to make that change. What an incredible circumstance. to be Yes. In. Yeah. Um, and there was a number of other different emergencies, you know, but I just wanted to kind of highlight those There's fuel spills. Um, like I said, um, people were, people were started getting a little bit crazy. People started breaking into cars and driving them into buildings. They started, uh, um, towards the end of the, uh, Towards the end of our time there, um, there was all out chaos. It, it, it really started turning into um, like a no man's land. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, we were lucky enough to, to get out of there safely. Yeah, and um, we're also able to help out a lot of the, uh, the Afghan firefighters and help them and their families actually um, leave, yeah. leave, that, leave that place. Well, let's talk a little bit about demobilization. How, what was that like? Did you just... Well, I don't want to talk about uh, equipment specifically, but uh, was it just you got the word the day of, like you're hopping on a plane, we're getting out of here? Yeah. Um, we we had a couple of different briefings um, about how they were drawing down uh, and how, how the whole operation was going was gonna to go on. I can't really talk about how, you know, yeah, the right. ins and outs of it, True. but we did receive word of, hey, this is the time where they're going to stop bringing people uh, or, you know, evacuating people, and this is the time that you guys are going to leave. Um, initially we were going to have to demobilize all of our equipment and they were only going to allow us to leave with a 72 hour bag and a, and a MRE. And, uh, we were going to have to leave behind everything. We were going to have to leave behind, behind a P19, our two FX ISU 90 kits and all of our bunker gear, all of our SCBA. We had to, we were going to leave behind everything. Um, luckily we had some great people helping us out. They were able to pull some strings and we brought back all of our equipment in order to prepare for the next QSC deployment. Because that's the whole point of the quick strike team is to always be ready to forward deploy quickly to the next one. And if we would have had to demobilize our equipment, we would have been out of pocket for who knows how long. Right. Until they more equipment. Exactly. Uh, The changeover was pretty fluid. Um, Army Rangers came in and took over the fire station. Um, because we were the, one of the last uh, 1,000 people there, the Army Rangers were going to be literally the last boots on the ground. So we taught them a real quick class, the same thing like the uh, the, the guys taught us how to use the trucks. Here's the fire station. Here's what you do. We shook their hand and we gave them, they said, hey, man, good luck. And, you know, I hope, you know, hope everyone, you know, makes it out of here okay. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the changeover. It, it, was, it was pretty quick. The, the drawdown happened very, very rapidly. Yeah. Man, what an incredible account. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy we could get you on and talk about it. Um, Thank you. One thing I wanted to bring up was any kind of lessons learned. So we, you know, our life really revolves around training and readiness training and preparing for war, you know, because as a military firefighter, that's, you know, what we'd be expected to do. And now that, you know, you put it to the test, what what kind of feedback or what kind of yeah things would you potentially change or introduce into our training regimen or what kind of lessons learned are there that you'd like to share? 
That's a great question. There was a lot of lessons learned. Basically, you always have to keep in the back of your head as a as a military firefighter that there's always that chance that you're going to be going to a situation like this. Um, and you always have to be to be ready to to uh, mobile, ready to go anywhere. Um, you know, we always have to have that rapid global mobility mindset, and that you you have to be ready to fight fire in a number of different ways. And I think that's one of the major lessons learned is to always be ready. Once again, we had two personnel that that had little to no notice. Um, our our fire truck repair guy, um, Senior McGalloway, he knew that we were. He found out forty eight hours before we we're leaving that we we're going to uh, Kabul. Um, you know, Senior McFinnan only had a month and a half before he knew. The rest of us were pretty, you know, had it in the mindset that we knew where we we're going. But um, it's always it's always good to know that you're going to have the back of your head that hey, I should be ready to take on something like this. Yes, really. The feedback is always be ready. Take that training seriously. You never know when you're going to have to use it. Um, and that's some feedback you hear from, from other folks that have spent time it, in austere places, you know, throughout the couple of decades that we've, we were fighting that, fought that war and, uh, know, know how to do things beyond just firefighting all the home station training that we're supposed to do, you know, with understanding how infrastructure works you know, within that red horse construct, um, and take it seriously because you just never know when you're going to have to use it. Um, or the defensive fighting positions, you know, yeah, defending, yeah, exactly. defending a fire truck, defending a fire station. That yes. is a pretty w- wild circumstance. And it's something that you don't think about, I guess, until you're in the moment. Um, like, wow, somebody could take these fire trucks and yeah. you know, potentially, potentially use them as weapons. You know, we got to defend these things, and then we wouldn't have an ability to be firefighters if they did take them. And stuff, something that I never thought of until you just brought it up. But uh, excellent stuff. Um, well, I, I appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to highlight from this experience? Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, the, the one thing that I want to do is I want to really give a shout out to to the guys that 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 were part of the Quick Strike team for for this very unique forward deployment. Uh, Master Sergeant Watts, Technical Sergeant Lilly, Technical Sergeant Jetty, Technical Sergeant Hammond. Technical Sergeant Davis, Technical Sergeant Roberts, Technical Sergeant Blackman, Staff Sergeant George, Staff Sergeant Prevett, Seniorman Galloway, Seniorman Finnanen, and A1C Barth. If it wasn't for those guys, um, things might have been a little bit different. Um, and it was because of the actions that they did is because it is the reason that, um, you know, I, I think I got my Bronze Star. It was, it, you know, I was just there to basically mentor those guys and direct them in the best way to mitigate and handle emergencies. But when it came down to it, you know, most of these guys handled the majority of the stuff by themselves. Um, it was due to their actions that, um, that I'm, I'm not only here talking to you, but that was that I also received that amazing award, uh, the bronze star. Yeah. Hats off to them and hats off to you for leading that effort. What an incredible experience. I'm glad you guys made it back safe. I'm glad you could do some good over there and help some folks out. And I'm sure that there's some uh, local nationals that are happy for what you did to help them get out of there too. And um, again, incredible experience. Thank you so much for sharing it. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to all my other senior enlisted leaders and everybody that's helped me out for my 20 years. And this is a, this is a great way to end off 20 years. Um, like I said, I appreciate this podcast that you're doing, man. It's, it's really going to give some insight to a lot of our uh, future generations out there. Thank you yeah, so much, we, Matt. We appreciate it. And, you know, capturing stories like this, man, I, I like the idea that we can archive something like this, you know, in 10 years from now, as long as the podcast platforms still exist, you could go and listen and 
hear what you went through during the Afghanistan withdrawal, you know, imagine if we could go and hear a firsthand account of firefighters and what they experienced during Vietnam, for example, you know, and, and so I think that the value of this goes beyond just today and, and the listener being able to hear your experience today, you know, 20 years down the road, they could potentially listen to this and, you know, I'm sure apply the lessons learned then too. So yeah, thanks for the comments on the podcast. Uh, appreciate you, you coming on and listening and, uh, have a good day. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Firedog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this on our website, firedog.us, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We're at the Firedog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow so you can stay plugged into every new episode. Lastly, we'd love it if you'd share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there in the firehouse. This is Matt Wilson with guest Roy Campos. Until next time, stay safe.